Section 9 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The White Cockade. When Bolingbroke got to Paris, he did not immediately attach himself to the service of James. Even then and there, he still appears to have been undecided. In the modern American phase, he sat on the fence for a while. Probably, if he had seen even then a chance of returning with safety to England, if the impeachments had not been going on, and if any manner of overture had been made to him from London, he would forthwith have dropped the Jacobite cause and returned to profess his loyalty to the reigning English sovereign. After a while, however, seeing that there was no chance for him at home, he went openly into the cause of the Stuarts and accepted the office of Secretary of State to James. It must have been a trying position for a man of Bolingbroke's genius and ambition when he found himself compelled to put up with an empty office at a sham court. Bolingbroke's desire was to play on a great stage with a vast admiring audience. He loved the heat and passion of debate. He enjoyed his own rhetorical triumphs. He must have been chilled and cramped indeed in a situation which allowed him no opportunity of displaying his most splendid and genuine qualities, while it constantly called on him for the exercise of the very qualities which he had least at hand. Nature had never meant him for a conspirator, or even for a subtle political intriguer, nor indeed had nature ever intended him to be the adherent of a lost cause. All that could have made a position like this tolerable to a man of his peculiar capacity could have been faith in the cause, that faith which would have prevented him from seeing any but its noble and exalted qualities, and would have made him forget himself in its hopes, its perils, its triumphs, and its disasters. On the contrary, it would seem that Bolingbroke found it difficult to take the Stuart cause seriously, even when he was himself playing the part of its leading statesman. A critical observer writes from Paris in the early part of the year 1716, saying that he believed Bolingbroke's chief fault was that he could not play his part with a grave enough face. He could not help laughing now and then at such kings and queens. Meantime, Bolingbroke amused himself in his moments of recreation after his old fashion. He indulged in amour after amour, intrigue after intrigue, Lord Chesterfield said of him that, though nobody spoke and wrote better upon philosophy than Lord Bolingbroke, no man in the world had less share of philosophy than himself. The least trifle, such as the over-roasting of a leg of mutton, would strangely disturb and ruffle his temper. On the other hand, a glance from a pretty woman or a glimpse of her ankle would send all Bolingbroke's political combinations and philosophical speculations flying into the air and convert him in a moment from the statesman or philosopher into the merest petit maître, macaroni, and gallant. Louis the Fourteenth refused to give open assistance to the cause of the Stuarts, but he was willing enough to lend any help that he could in private to Bolingbroke and to them. His death was the first severe blow to the cause which Bolingbroke now represented. Louis the Fourteenth was, according to Bolingbroke himself, the best friend James then had. When I engaged, says Bolingbroke, in this business, my principal dependence was on his personal character. My hopes sank as he declined and died when he expired. 
the regent duke of orleans was a man who with all his coarse and unrestricted dissipation had some political capacity and even statesmanship he saw that the Stuart was a sinking the hanoverian a rising cause even when the two seemed most nearly balanced it yet appeared to orleans if we may quote a phrase more often used in our days than in his that the one cause was only half alive but the other was half dead orleans moreover had a good deal of that feeling which was more strongly marked still in a duke of orleans of a later day he had a liking for england and for english ways he was indeed rather inclined to affect the political manners of an english statesman he therefore leaned to the side of the government established in england and at the urgent request of the english ambassador in paris he acted with some energy in preventing the sailing of vessels intended for the uses of an expedition to the english coast james stuart seemed as if he were determined still further to imperil the chances of his family and to embarrass his adherents the right moment for a movement in his favour had been allowed to pass away and now with characteristic blundering and ill fortune he seized upon the most unsuitable time that could possibly have been employed for such an attempt something might have been done perhaps a temporary alteration in the dynasty might have been obtained if energy and decision had been shown in that momentous interval when queen anne lay dying but when that time had been allowed to pass the clear policy of the pretender was to permit the fears of englishmen to go to sleep for a while to endeavour to reorganise his plans and his party to wait until a certain reaction should set in a reaction very likely to come about because of the apparent incapacity and the unattractive character of george i and then at some timely hour with well-matured preparations to strike an energetic blow george i was only a year on the throne when the adherents of james got up a miserable attempt at an insurrection there were three conditions under which and under which alone an insurrection just then would have had a reasonable chance of success these conditions were fully recognized and understood by the jacobite leaders in england scotland and france the first was that a rising should take place at once in england and in scotland the second that the chevalier in person should take the field and the third that france should give positive assistance to the enterprise the jacobite cause was strong in the southwestern counties of england and there the influence of the duke of ormond was strong likewise the general arrangement therefore in the minds of the jacobite chiefs was that james stuart should make his appearance in scotland that at the same moment the duke of ormond should raise the standard of revolt in some of the southwestern counties and that france should assist the expedition with men money and arms when james acting against the advice of his best counsellors resolved on striking a blow at once two of the necessary conditions were clearly wanting france was not willing to give any actual assistance and ormond was not ready to raise the standard of rebellion in england ormond's sudden appearance in paris struck dismay into the hearts of the jacobite counsellors men and women there it had been distinctly understood that he was to remain in england and that if threatened with arrest he was to hasten to one of the western counties where he and his friends were strong and strike a sudden blow he was to seize bristol exeter plymouth and other towns and set the stuart flag flying all over that part of england 
when he appeared in france a mere solitary fugitive all men of sense saw that the game was up bolingbroke at once sent through safe hands a clear statement of the condition of things to be laid before lord mar bolingbroke's object was to restrain mar from any movement in the altered state of affairs the letter however came too late mar had already made his movement toward the highlands there was no stopping the enterprise then the rebellion had taken fire james was determined more than ever to go his arguments were the arguments of mere desperation i cannot but see he wrote to bolingbroke that affairs grow daily worse and worse by delays and that as the business is now more difficult than it was six months ago so these difficulties will in all human appearance rather increase than diminish violent diseases must have violent remedies and to use none has in some cases the same effect as to use bad ones indeed it was impossible that the chevalier himself or the duke of ormond could hold back both had personal courage quite enough for such an attempt on the twenty eighth of october james stuart after many delays set out in disguise and travelled westward to st malo ormond sailed from the coast of normandy to that of devonshire but found there no sign of any arrangement for a rising his plans had long been known to the english government and measures had been taken to frustrate them in that little jacobite parliament sitting in paris which bolingbroke spoke of with such contempt and from which as he puts it no sex was excluded there was hardly any secret made of the projects that were carrying on before the sudden appearance of ormond in paris they had counted with the utmost confidence on a full success and were already talking of the restoration as if it were an accomplished fact every word they uttered which it was of the least importance for the british government to hear was instantly made known to lord stair the new english ambassador a resolute and capable man a brilliant soldier an astute and bold diplomatist equal to any craft ready for any emergency charming to all dear to his friends very formidable to his enemies ormond found that as he had let the favourable moment slip when he fled from england to france there was now no means whatever of recalling the lost opportunity he returned to brittany and there he found the chevalier preparing to start for scotland after various goings and comings the chevalier was at last enabled to embark at dunkirk in a small vessel with a few guns and half a dozen jacobite officers to attend him and he made for the scottish coast about the same time and as if in obedience to some word of command from france there was a general and almost simultaneous outburst of jacobite demonstration in england amounting in most places to riot in london and all over england so far as one can judge the popular feeling appears to have been rather with the jacobites than against them stout jacobites toasted a mysterious person called job who had no connection with the prophet but whose name contained the initial letters of james ormond and bolingbroke and kit was no less popular because it stood for king james the third while the mysterious symbolism of the three b's implied best-born britain and so the chevalier de st georges the chevalier's birthday the tenth of june was celebrated with wild outbursts of enthusiasm in several places stuart loving oxford in especial 
made a brave show of its white roses. The loyalists who endeavored to do a similar honor to the birthday of King George were often violently assailed by mobs. In many places, the windows of houses whose inmates refused to illuminate in honor of the Chevalier were broken. William III was burnt in effigy in various parts of London and in many towns throughout the country. So serious at one period did the revulsion of Jacobite feeling appear to be that it was thought necessary to form a camp in Hyde Park and to bring together a large body of troops there. The lifeguards and horse grenadiers three battalions of the foot guards the duke of argyle's regiment and several pieces of cannon were established in the camp by a curious coincidence the troops were reviewed by king george the prince of wales and a duke of marlborough on the twenty fifth of august seventeen fifteen the very day on which as we shall presently see the highland clans set up the standard of the stuarts at braemar in scotland the camp had a certain amount of practical advantage in it independently of its supposed political necessity it made hyde park safe at night before the camp was established and after it was broken up the park appears to have been little better than bagshot heath or hounslow heath it was the favorite parade ground of highway robbers and murderers the soldiers themselves were occasionally suspected of playing the part of highwaymen a man in those days says scott might have all the external appearance of a gentleman and yet turn out to be a highwayman, and the profession of the polite and accomplished adventurer who nicked you out of your money at White's or bowled you out of it at Marlebun was often united with that of the professed ruffian who on Bagshot Heath or Finchley Common commanded his brother Bo to stand and deliver. Robbers, a fertile and alarming theme, filled up every vacancy, and the names of the golden farmer, the flying highwayman, Jack Needham, and other beggars' opera heroes, were familiar in our mouths as household words. The revulsion of Jacobite feeling actually showed itself sometimes amongst the soldiers in the camp. Accounts published at the time tell us of men having been flogged and shot for wearing Jacobite emblems in their caps. Perhaps in mentioning this Hyde Park camp, it may not be inappropriate to notice the fact that General McCartney, who had figured in a terrible tragedy in the park two or three years before, returned to England and obtained the favor of George by bringing over six thousand soldiers from Holland to assist the king. General McCartney was the man who had acted as second to Lord Mohun in the fatal duel in Hyde Park on the 15th November, 1712, when both Mohun and the Duke of Hamilton were killed. McCartney escaped to Holland and was charged by the Duke of Hamilton second with having stabbed the Duke through the heart while Colonel Hamilton was endeavoring to raise him from the ground. McCartney came back and took his trial, but was only found guilty of manslaughter, that is to say, found guilty of having taken part in the duel and escaped without punishment. Probably McCartney and Hamilton and Mohun and the Duke are best remembered in our time because of the effect which that fatal meeting had upon the fortunes of Beatrix Esmond. The insurrection had already broken out in Scotland. John Erskine, 11th Earl of Mar, set himself up as lieutenant-general in the cause of the Chevalier. Lord Mar was a man of much courage and some capacity. He had held high office under Queen Anne. 
one of the biographers of that period describes Marr as a devoted adherent of the Stuarts. His career is indeed a fair illustration of the sort of thing which then sometimes passed for devoted adherence to a cause. When King George reached England, he dismissed Marr from office, suspecting him of sympathy with the Jacobite movement. Marr had expected something of the kind, and had written an obsequious and a groveling letter to George, in which he spoke of the king's happy accession, professed unbounded devotion to the House of Hanover, and promised that, You shall ever find in me as faithful a subject as ever any king had. The new king, however, declined to trust to the faithfulness of this subject, and a year after the faithful subject had returned to his Jacobite convictions and was gathering the Highland clans in James Stuart's name. The clans were got together at Braemar. The white cockade was mounted there by clan after clan, the Mackintoshes being the first to display it as the emblem of the Stuart cause. Inverness was seized, King James was proclaimed at several places, notably at Dundee by Graham, the brother of conquering Graham, Bonnie Dundee, the fearless, cruel, clever Claverhouse, who fell at Killiecrankie. Perth was secured. The force under Mar's leadership grew greater every day. He had begun with a handful of men. He had now a little army. He had set up his standard almost at haphazard at Braemar, and now nearly all the country north of the Tay was in the hands of the Jacobites. The Duke of Argyll was put in command of the royal forces and arrived in Scotland in the middle of September 1715. He hastened to the camp, which had been got together somehow at Stirling. He came there almost literally alone. He brought no soldiers with him. He found few soldiers there to receive him. Under his command, he had altogether about a thousand foot and half as many dragoons, the latter consisting in great measure of the famous and excellent Scots Greys. His prospect looked indeed very doubtful. He could expect little or no assistance from his own clan. He had work enough to do in guarding against the possible attack from some of the followers of Lord Mar. Glasgow, Dumfries, and other towns were likewise in imminent danger from some of the Highland clans and were kept in a continual agony of apprehension. It seemed likely enough that Argyll might soon be surrounded at Stirling. If Mar had only made a forward movement, it is impossible to say what degree of success he might not have accomplished. It seems almost marvellous, when we look back and survey the state of things, to see what a miserable force the government had to rely upon. In the whole country they had only about 8,000 men. They had more men abroad than at home, and in the critical condition of things which still prevailed upon the continent, it did not seem clear that they could, except in the very last extremity, bring home many of the men whom they kept abroad. Of that little force of 8,000 soldiers, they did not venture to send a considerable proportion up to the north. They had perhaps good reason. They did not know, yet, where the serious blow was to be struck for the Stuart cause. Many of George's counsellors still looked upon the movement in Scotland as something merely in the nature of a feint. They believed that the real blow would yet be struck by Ormond in the west of England. But the evil fortune which hung over the Stuart cause in all its later days clung to it now. There was no conceivable reason 
why Mar should not have marched southward. The forces of the king were few in number, and were not well placed for the purpose of making any considerable resistance. But in an enterprise like that of Mar, all depends upon rapidity of movement. What we may call the ultimate resources of the country were in the hands of the king and his adherents. Every day's delay enabled them to grow stronger. Every day's delay beyond a certain time discouraged and weakened the invaders. Mar might, at one critical moment, have swept Argyle's exhausted troops before him, but he was feeble and timorous. He dallied, he let the time pass, he allowed Argyle to get away without making an effort to attack him. It was then that one of the Gordon clan broke into that memorable exclamation, Oh, for one hour of Dundee! The exclamation which Byron has paraphrased in the line, Oh, for one hour of blind old Dandolo! Certainly one hour of Dundee might at more than one crisis in this melancholy struggle have secured for the time the cause of the Stuarts and won for James at least a temporary occupation of the throne of his ancestors. Mar's little force remained motionless long enough to allow the Duke of Argyle to get sufficient strength to make an attack upon it at Sheriff Muir. Sheriff Muir was not much of a victory. Each side, in fact, claimed the conqueror's honor. Mar was not annihilated, nor Argyle driven back. The Duke of Argyle probably lost more of his men, but on the other hand, he captured many guns and standards, and he reappeared on the same field the next day, while Mar showed there no more. Tested in the only practical way, it is clear that the Duke of Argyle had the better of it. Lord Mar wanted to do something and was prevented from doing it at a time when to him everything depended on advance and on success. The Duke of Argyle successfully interposed between Mar and his object and therefore was clearly the victor. It is on record that no small share of Mar's ill success was due to the action or rather the inaction of the famous Highland outlaw Rob Roy. He and his clan had joined Mar's standard, but his sympathies seemed to have been with Argyle. He had an unusually large body of men under his command, for many of the clan Macpherson had been committed to his leadership in consequence of the old age of their chief, but at a critical moment he refused to lead his men to the charge and stood on a hill with his followers unconcernedly surveying the fight. It is said, had he kept faith, he could have turned the fortunes of the day. Argyle and the cause he represented could afford to wait, and Mar could not. The insurrection already began to melt. James Stewart himself made his appearance in Scotland. He was characteristically late for Sheriff Muir, and when he did throw himself into the field, he seemed unable to take any decisive step, or even to come to any clear decision. He did not succeed in making himself popular, even for the moment among his followers in Scotland. The occasion was one in which gallant bearing and kingly demeanor would have gone for much, and indeed it is not at all impossible that a leader of a different stamp from James might even then have so inspired the Highland clansmen, and so made use of his opportunity as to overwhelm Argyle and the Hanoverian forces, and turn the whole crisis to his favor. But James was peculiarly unsuited to an enterprise of the kind. He had graceful manners, 
a mild serene temper and great power of application to work his personal courage was undoubted and he was willing enough to risk his own life on any chance but he had none of the spirit of a commander he was sometimes weak and sometimes obstinate his very appearance was not in his favour among the highland men to whom he had previously been unknown he was tall and thin with pale face and eyes that wanted fire and expression his words were few his behaviour always sedate and somewhat depressed here among the scottish clansmen on the verge of rebellion he seemed utterly borne down by the greatness of the enterprise he was wholly unable to infuse anything like spirit or hope into his followers on the contrary his appearance among them when he did show himself had a dispiriting and a depressing effect on almost every mind those who remember the manner and demeanour of the late louis napoleon emperor of the french the silent shyness the appearance of almost constant depression which were characteristic of that sovereign will we think be easily able to form a clear idea of the effect that james stuart produced among his followers in scotland he did not care to see the soldiers exercise and handle their weapons he avoided going among them as much as possible the men at last began to feel a mistrust of his courage the one great quality which he certainly did not lack a feeling of something like contempt began to spread abroad can he speak at all some of the soldiers asked he was all ice his very kindness was freezing a man like dundee called to such an enterprise would have set the clans of scotland aflame with enthusiasm james stuart was only a chilling and a dissolving influence his more immediate military counsellors were like himself and their only policy seemed to be one of postponement and delay they advised him against action of every kind the clansmen grew impatient at perth one devoted highland chief actually suggested that james should be taken away by force from his advisers and brought amongst men who were ready to fight if he is willing to die like a prince said this man he will find there are ten thousand gentlemen in scotland who are willing to die with him if james had followed the bent of his disposition he might even then have died like a prince or gone to a throne his opponents were as little inclined for action as his own immediate advisers the duke of argyle himself delayed making an advance until peremptory orders were sent to him from london so long and with so little excuse did he delay that statesmen in london suspected not unreasonably that argyle was still willing to give james stuart a chance or was not yet quite certain whether the cause of the stuarts was wholly lost it is characteristic of the time that so long as there seemed any possibility of james's redeeming his crown argyle's own colleagues suspected that argyle was not willing to put himself personally in the way at last however the peremptory order came that argyle must advance upon perth the moment the advance became apparent the counsellors of james stuart insisted on retreat on a day of ill omen to the stuart cause the thirtieth of january seventeen sixteen the anniversary of the day when charles i was executed the retreat from perth was resolved on that retreat was the end of the enterprise many jacobites had already made up their minds that the struggle was over that there was nothing better to be done than to disperse before the advancing troops of king george that the sooner the forces of james stuart melted away and james stuart himself got back to france the better 
James Stuart went back to France, and the clansmen returned to their homes. Some of the Roman Catholic gentlemen rose in Northumberland, and endeavoured to form a junction with a portion of Mar's force, which had come southward to meet them. The English Jacobites, however, were defeated at Preston, and compelled to surrender. After a voyage of five days in a small vessel, James succeeded in reaching Gravelines safely on the 8th of February, 1716. His whole expedition had not occupied him more than six weeks. It was believed at the time that the councils of the Duke of Marlborough were mainly instrumental in bringing about the prompt suppression of the rebellion. Marlborough's advice was asked with regard to the military movements and dispositions to be made, and the belief of the day was that it was his counsel and the manner in which the government followed it out which led to the utter overthrow of James Stuart and the dispersion of his followers. Marlborough is said to have actually told in advance the very time at which, if his advice were followed, the rebellion would be put down. Nothing is more likely than that Marlborough's advice should have been sought and should have been given. It would not in the least degree militate against the truth of the story that the outbreak took place so soon after Marlborough had been professing the most devoted attachment to the cause of the Stuarts, and had declared, as we have said already, that he would rather cut off his right hand than do anything to injure the claims of the Chevalier Saint-Georges. But it would not seem that any advice Marlborough might have given was followed out very strictly in the measures taken to put down the rebellion. We may be sure that Marlborough's would have been military counsel worthy of the greatest commander of his age. But in the measures taken to put down the rebellion, we can see nothing but incapacity, vacillation, and even timidity. An energetic man in Argyle's position, seeing how James Stuart halted and fluctuated, must have made up his mind at once that a rapid and bold movement would finish the rebellion, and we find no such movement made until at last the most peremptory orders from London compelled Argyle at all hazards to advance. If then Marlborough gave his advice in London, which is very likely, it would seem that for some reason or other the advice was not followed by the commanders in the field. The whole story reminds one of the belief long entertained in France, and which we suppose has some votaries there even still, that the great success of the Duke of Wellington in the latter part of the war against Napoleon was due to the military councils of Dumouriez, then in exile in London. There was a plan for the capture of Edinburgh Castle, which, like other Stuart enterprises, would have been a great thing if it had only succeeded. Edinburgh Castle was then full of arms, stores, and money. Some eighty of the Jacobites, chiefly Highlanders, contrived a well-laid scheme by which to get possession of the castle. They managed by bribes and promises to get over three soldiers in the castle itself. The arrangement was that these men were to be furnished with ladders of a peculiar construction suited to the purpose, which, at a certain hour of the night, they were to lower down the castle rock on the north side, the side looking on the Prince's Street of our day. By these ladders the assailants were quietly to ascend, and then overpower the little garrison and possess themselves of the castle. When the stroke had been done, they were to fire three cannon, and men stationed on the opposite coast of Fife were thereupon to light a beacon, and the flash of that light would be the signal for other beacons from hill to hill to bear the news to Mar, as the lights along the Argive hills carried the tale of Troy's fall to Argos. The plan was an utter failure. It broke down in two places. 
one of the conspirators told his brother the brother told his wife the wife took alarm and sent an anonymous letter disclosing the whole plot to the lord justice clark yet even then had the conspirators been in time their plan might have succeeded for the anonymous letter did not reach its destination till an hour after the time appointed to make the attempt on the castle but the conspirators were not punctual some of them were in a tavern in edinburgh drinking to the success of their enterprise every one in the neighbourhood seems to have known what their enterprise was to have had some sympathy with it to have talked freely about it eighteen of these heroes kept up their conviviality in the tavern till long after the appointed time the hostess of the place was heard to say that they were powdering their hair to go to the attack on the castle a strange sort of powder lord stanhope remarks to provide on such an occasion lord stanhope evidently takes the hostess's words in a literal sense and believes that the lady really meant to say that the jovial conspirators were actually powdering their locks as if for a ball we may assume that the hostess spoke as hamlet did tropically whether she did or not whether they were really adorning their locks or simply draining the flagon the result was all the same they came too late the plot was discovered the sympathizing soldiers from the castle were already under arrest the conspirators had to disperse and fly few of them were arrested their neighbors were only too willing to help them to escape it cannot be doubted that there was sympathy enough in edinburgh to have made their plan the beginning of a complete success if it had only itself been allowed to succeed but the disclosure to the lady and the powder for the hair brought all to nothing the whole story might almost be said to be an allegorical illustration of the fortunes of the stuarts the pint and the petticoat always came in the way of a success to that cause when james reached gravelines he hurried on to st germain there the next morning bolingbroke came to see him bolingbroke to do him justice had done all in his power to dissuade james from making his fatal expedition at such a time and under such untoward circumstances he had shown judgment prudence and in the true sense courage he had shown himself a statesman he might very well have met james in the mood and with the remonstrances of the councillors who after the event are able to say i told you so but bolingbroke appears to have had more discretion and more manliness he advised james to withdraw once again from the dominions of the king and take refuge in lorraine bolingbroke knew well by this time that there was not the slightest chance of any open assistance from the french court and even that the french court would be only too ready to throw james over and sacrifice him if by doing so they could strengthen the bonds of good feeling between france and england james professed to take bolingbroke's counsel in very friendly fashion and parted from bolingbroke with many expressions of confidence and affection yet it is certain that at this time he had made up his mind not to see bolingbroke any more he went for a time to a house near versailles a kind of headquarters of intriguing political women and thence immediately dispatched a letter to bolingbroke relieving him of all his duties as secretary of state bolingbroke affects to have taken his dismissal very composedly but it cannot be doubted that his heart burnt within him at what he doubtless believed to be the ingratitude of the prince for whom he had done and sacrificed so much for bolingbroke had that unlucky gift of fancy 
which enables a man to see himself and his own doings and his own merits in whatever light is most gratifying to his personal vanity he had in truth never risked or sacrificed anything for the sake of james or the stuart cause he never had the least idea of risking or sacrificing anything for that cause or for any other it was only when his fortunes in england became desperate when impeachment and as he believed a scaffold threatened him when he had no apparent alternative left but to join the pretender or stay at home and lose all it was only then that he took any decided step as an adherent of the cause of the stuarts we cannot doubt that james stuart knew to the full the part that bolingbroke had played he knew that he owed bolingbroke no favour and that he could have no confidence in him still it remains to the present hour a mystery why james should then and in that manner have got rid of bolingbroke for ever bolingbroke himself does not appear to have known the cause of his dismissal it may be that james had grown tired of the whole fruitless struggle and was glad to get rid of a minister whose restless energy and genius would always have kept political intrigue alive and political enterprise going or it may be that just then there had fallen into james's hands some new and recent evidences of bolingbroke's willingness to treat on occasion with either side however this may be james made up his mind to dismiss his great follower and bolingbroke at once made up his mind to endeavour to ingratiate himself into the favour of the house of hanover and to secure his restoration to london society almost at the very moment of his dismissal he made application to some of his friends in london to endeavour to obtain for him a permission to return we do not absolutely say a farewell to bolingbroke now and here as he stands dismissed from the service of the stuarts and disqualified for the service of the hanoverians nearly forty years of life were yet before him but his work as a statesman was done never again had his genius a chance of shining in the service of a throne the master politician of the age was out of employment for ever we do not know if history anywhere supplies such another example of a great political career snapped off so suddenly at its midst hardly even at its midst and never put together again bolingbroke reappeared again and again in england he even took more than once a certain kind of part in politics that is in pamphleteering he tried to be the inspiration and the guiding star of pulteney and other rising men who had come for one reason or another to detest walpole but even these soon began to find bolingbroke rather more of a hindrance than a help and were glad to shake him off and be rid of him he becomes everything by turns plays at cool philosophy and philosophic retreat is always assuring the world in tones of highly suspicious eagerness that he is done for ever with it and its works and pomps and he is always yearning and striving to get back to the works and pomps again he plays at farming actually puts on countrified manners and dines ostentatiously off homely farmer-like fare to the amusement of some of his friends he undertakes to settle the whole question of religion of this world and the next including the entire code of human ethics and at the same time he is very fond of expatiating to young men concerning the most effective ways for the seduction of women the course to be followed with a lady of quality the different course in dealing with an actress the policy of a long siege and the policy of an attack by storm he marries again and gets money from his wife a french marquise once beautiful somewhat older than himself and seems to be fond of her 
and happy with her and discourses to her as to others about the variety of his successful amours through long long years his shadow his ghost for in the political sense it is nothing else keeps revisiting the glimpses of the moon in england for all the influence he is destined to have on the realities of political life he might as well be already lying in that tomb in the old church on the edge of the thames at battersea where his strangely brilliant strangely blighted career is to come to an end at last end of section nine recording by pamela nagami